Just think, Virgil, he just came out, right? Yes. Number 23, right? Who knows how many bags he's gone through in the bag? when you stop? From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rough against admission requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown Estate in front of a live studio audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode number 143 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today I'm going to do something that I have not done before. It's going to be a little different than what you might see on other podcasts. Yes, I'm actually going to do something that was on a pay-per-view, this being the 1992 Royal Rumble match. And you say, why? To which I would reply, why the hell not? I think that was a Bobby Kennedy thing. I asked not why. I, I forget, but whatever. It's it's very late as I tape this. And I'm going to tell you right now that this is going to be uncensored. Usually I bleep myself when I drop an F-bomb. And, and if I do here, I'm not going to bleep it. Because this this show means too much to me as a wrestling fan going back many years. Having seen it when it originally aired. Being only moderately appalled that they have the Coliseum version on the WWE Network that I was watching earlier. Because there are some interviews there that are added in, such as the Ric Flair spoiler that he's going to be number three in the Rumble, which is okay for the Coliseum release. But before I go any further, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsmallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsmallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter. At GF Allentown Pod, that is at GF Allentown Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And there are other great shows on Pro Wrestling Only coming out this week. There'll be an episode of Worldcast, Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast, Days of Thunder came out last Thursday. See, I'm kind of taping this well in advance, so I can't really see exactly what is actually dropping. So anyway, I, I want to make a point. I, I kind of left off somewhere with the last show where I had mentioned that I liked them all at Christmas, which seems completely out of character for me. Like I should be annoyed that, you know, at just how crowded it is and how you have to park so damn far away. And when I go to my usual mall, which is in Salem, New Hampshire, a lot of the parking lot is now out of commission because they're built, they built this new thing. And with Sears being closed, there's some changes coming to that mall, but I was just walking around and I feel a certain energy in there. And now maybe it was because it was the month of November and it isn't fully ramped up Christmas season yet where everything is just so incredibly overdone. Or maybe it's just that I'm feeling a little bit more in the spirit of things this year. For example, last week I'm coming home from work and I put on one of the serious Christmas channels, which... I don't think I had ever done before. I think it's like Channel 65. I think it's like Holly or something like that. And I listened to about four or five straight songs, and I thought to myself, huh, I really seem to have changed as an individual that I'm listening to this, especially when the Billy Joel channel is a thing that ex- it exists and is current. But one, one thing about the mall, and I've, I may have talked about this before, my distaste 
for the Apple Store and all that it represents with its well, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of issues there. You want to talk about crowded. It's not just during the Christmas season. It's basically any time you go into the mall. And it's one of the worst places on earth, the Apple Store, in my opinion. But, however, there's a new place at your local mall because if there is an Apple Store there, that means that there's probably a Microsoft Store. And the Microsoft Store, I will argue, is worse because they are trying to imitate what I consider the worst place on earth. And nobody actually goes there, so you don't have the problem with all the people. But it's so depressing inside there. Like, I was going to go look at laptops. And by the way, if anybody has a good suggestions for a laptop for me to buy, I mean, I've been recording this podcast on the same laptop for a number of years now. And, I mean, it's mainly about 90% of what I use this for. So if anybody has some suggestions, please please email me at kurgansmallowntown uh, at gmail.com. But the Microsoft Store, it's it's so bad because it's an imitation of a terrible thing, and it just makes me never want to go in there. I went in there and, like, browsed. It's like, I don't even want to talk to the employees, okay? You're probably an Apple Store reject. And I apologize if there are any listeners who <laughs> work at the Microsoft Store. It's perfectly fine. I'm just saying... I don't like those type of stores, like like the way the way that they're designed. Maybe I'm just not used to it. Maybe I'm just an old man. I don't know. But mall, okay. Apple Store, not okay. Maybe I should just walk around out front with the old Frenchie Martin signs. The Apple Store is not okay. They probably have me dragged out of there like Gorilla Monsoon threatened to do to Bobby Heenan many times on this 1992 Royal Rumble show, which, as I said, I'm not going to be covering... The whole show. The, I, I want this to be about the Royal Rumble match itself because it is my favorite professional wrestling match of all time. Yeah, there's Savage Steamboat, and you know you can go on down the line of great matches. But for that, with it being an hour long, clearly, if you've listened to this program, you know that I love weird combinations of people. Which I mean, the Survivor Series teams is one of the things that. I will just never grow tired of just thinking of all the permutations and all that. Well, a Royal Rumble is made for something like that. And particularly with 1992 and Ric Flair being the story, Flair having such a long career. And I kind of want to go through this a little bit later, how my theory of the 1992 Royal Rumble, which is perfectly booked except for one thing at the end, the 92 Rumble is the this is your life, Ric Flair. Now, it's not like the... Rock and Mick Foley, one that became famous in 1999 for having a high rating or whatever it was. I just remember that feeling like a really, really long segment. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, I got a high rating. But I just remember it being long. Oh, Royal Rumble is going to last over an hour. But when I sit down, it's it's not like I think of it that way. I think of it like basically watching a one-hour wrestling program but you're you're cramming in thirty guys who have you know made some impression on me over the years. It's it's a very strong lineup. There are no red roosters in in this one. So anyway, the 1992 Royal Rumble, January 19th, 1992, at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York, a place that I have actually gone to. It was not before that Rumble. It was. In 1998, for an episode of Raw is War on December the 28th, which would have been the night before the taping in Worcester, Massachusetts, that I went to where Mick Foley won the world title. So, 
I'm going to run through the four matches that preceded the actual Royal Rumble match. We start with the opener, which is basically the Owen Hart show in the new foundation against the Orient Express, who by this point had pretty much just adopted the gimmick. We're the guys who are really, really good at doing opening matches at Royal Rumbles. And there's no shame in that. For the new foundation, Neidhart had been an announcer for most of the previous year. And Owen Hart comes back and, well, why don't we put him with Neidhart? I mean, it worked for Brett, so maybe we can bring along Owen in this tag team. Well, Neidhart was not long for the World Wrestling Federation because I think he's out of there by the time WrestleMania 8 happens and Owen is in that ridiculous singles match against Skinner the last two minutes and features a <laughs> chewing tobacco spit spot. It's, it's, in watching that match, it was also not clear why Pat Tanaka had to wear a shirt. I, I don't understand the disrespect, but I, you know, he plays that role well of being, you know, the little guy heel who generally ends up losing. But I, why do you have to wear a shirt? I don't quite understand that at all. But Owen was pretty much godlike in this match. I'm not going to say that it was, oh, four stars or anything like the 91 Rumble match with the Rockers and the Orient Express, but here's Owen in the match. He had all the shine at the beginning, and then he played face in peril, and then he ended up getting the pin with the rocket launcher at the end. So I I enjoyed that match uh, quite a bit, actually. So we go into the next one, which is the Mountie defending against Rowdy Roddy Piper in something of a surprise because I don't recall how I thought about it or what how I felt at the time. I, I cannot, I should have gone back and watched the weekend TV to see if they mention any sort of change in that match because it's the Friday night where Bret Hart loses the title in Springfield, Massachusetts. In Springfield, Massachusetts. They mention it like, 30,000 times. Mountie wins the title because Bret Hart had a 285-degree fever. Or is that Fahrenheit or Celsius? I, I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, on the pay-per-view, they, they make sure, and I don't know if this is a thing where they're telling people, get off your ass and come to the house shows because you might miss something. Or if somebody just really has a hard-on for the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, and just loves saying the name. So anyway, this is a point where Bret Hart was looking to go to WCW, but it was not a thing where he lost the title because they thought he was going to leave. Apparently, he had forgot to give notice, or so. It's Bret Hart always with the issues with his contract. So the Mountie wins it, and it's effectively to set up the Piper versus Bret Hart match at WrestleMania Eight, which just says to me that they didn't have enough effective heels to you know put in a title match of that. But no complaints, because I love that Piper-Bret Hart match. The only thing that I regret is that Piper couldn't have turned heel and st- you know stuck around for much of 1992. But that's his prerogative. I, I, don't, I never begrudge those guys who kind of come and go as they please, like the way Rick Martell was doing in the early 90s as well. It's a quick match with the Mountie and Piper. Some interference backfires with Jimmy Hart up on the apron. The Mountie does the skin the cat move, which not something you see a lot from a heel, especially like a heel that's around 250 pounds or whatever the Mountie was billed as. I will just go with the Gorilla Monsoon weight. He's close to that 300-pound mark. So the idea 
all right, Piper might win two titles here, but he's going to win that first one, and he locks in the sleeper. And at the time, I just remember thinking it was kind of stunning because Piper had been a top guy or close to it for the entire time that he's there, and you know, eight years, less the two years that he's gone. And what this leads to is one of the all-time great Howard Finkel and new announcements. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of this bout and new I have mentioned this on past podcasts, but I feel that was a well-deserved reward to Piper for his 1991, because you think about the year that he had at the beginning, he gets Virgil to a point where he's basically one of the three or four most popular guys in the entire company, Virgil, and Roddy Piper had a huge hand in that. And he's wrestling DiBiase on certain house shows, but as you get later in the year, Ric Flair arrives, and who better to pair Flair with when he comes in than with his good pal, Roddy Piper, they have the feud they have the little incident at the announcer's desk on Superstars. I covered that about a year ago. I don't know what the episode number was. I didn't write it down, but it's September 28th, 1991, if you want to look it up in your own personal archive or whatever. And Piper is doing jobs for Ric Flair. Roddy Piper did not lose on a regular basis, but what this does is it elevates Ric Flair in the eyes of the WWF fan who might not be reading the magazines, who might not be watching the NWA, WCW on TBS to say, okay, well, Ric Flair, he's as good as a real world's champion. So what he says, all this shit that he's talking, well, he can back it up as well. And we get two more tag matches before the Royal Rumble. And and this makes sense because having tag guys in the Royal Rumble makes no sense because you don't think like, oh, well, they're clearly not going to win except for that insane person who predicted that Axe was going to win the Royal Rumble and eliminate Andre the Giant. Although he did do one of the two in the 1990 Rumble, but uh, he's long gone and hard to find at this point. But we have the Bushwhackers taking on the Beverly Brothers, a complete and utter fucking shit show of a match that is saved by Bobby Heenan basically doing a 16-minute stand-up routine on Jameson. And it's worth, like, it is the perfect match to put on if you're doing something else and you're not watching what's happening. Because all you're hearing is Gorilla and Heenan bickering back and forth, Heenan making jokes about Jameson, and, yeah, occasionally you'll hear Jameson like, he's cheating, and Jameson's horrible act at ringside that, you know, you want to talk about people complaining these days. Oh, the whole company is set up, to, you know, to amuse Vince McMahon. Well, stuff like that happened back then, too, because the whole Jameson thing, I never got it then. I never got it as a fan in the Attitude Era looking back, and I still don't get it now when even I was willing to say nice, well, maybe not nice things, but, you know, at least qualify, okay, the Bushwhackers do their job. And, yeah, they do get the crowd into it, although there's some weird chants during that match that I couldn't understand what was happening. Heenan also doing a lot of hot dog jokes on Gorilla, so he was following the Jesse Ventura WrestleMania Six script. Beverly's actually prevail over the Bushwhackers, so we're setting them up for uh, bigger things, you'd think, later in the year, but 
it never really came to be other than that LOD feud once they returned by summertime, late spring and into the summertime. And speaking of Legion of Doom, they're still the tag team champions, although not for long because the infamous match against Money Inc. in Denver would take place in early February. So only a couple weeks after this, Legion of Doom defending against the Natural Disasters. Disasters win by countout. And what was interesting about this match was, how, I don't want to say it was a squash or anything, but LOD got in a very, very limited amount of offense, which if you knew they were about to disappear, that's exactly how you probably would have booked it. But with the countout finish, they do the ridiculous trope of Jimmy Hart and the two natural disasters, Typhoon and Earthquake, oh, holding up the belts. Hey, we think we won the titles. like... Don't you watch, like, the other programming? Can't you read the rules? And especially you, Jimmy Hart. You've been around a long time. I don't I don't know what the hell planet you've been on, but, oh, my goodness. I mean, that whole thing just really, really annoys me. And at that point, they go to the intermission, and there's a lot of great, you know, Royal Rumble promo. I almost said Survivor Series because I've had those on the mind lately. But the Royal Rumble promos in 1992, as they go through them, you know, with the title on the line, it's funny to see the Berserker tell you how he's going to win the WWF title. Although, he did have a case based on the fact that he would win all of his matches by dumping guys over the top rope. You get the insane Sid promo where he's like, you are looking at the next World Wrestling Federation champion. You are looking at Sid Justice. And it's incredibly intense up against his face, and then you cut to the next guy. It's the fucking repo man. <laughs> like, hoo, hoo, hoo. hey, hey, s- s- I'm gonna steal the WWF title. All, all right, all right, we get it. Demolition Smash. Yeah, you're a repo man now. Yeah, we love it. But, and then Hogan capping it off, getting uh, 1.7 times as much uh, airtime as anybody else, which I guess is justified on the basis of he was the champion right before this with the. <laughs> Him and The Undertaker, and for whatever reason, they're granted numbers 20 through 30, as if they weren't going to get a high number anyway just from the booking of the match. But what always bothered me is why do they make it 20 through 30? Why could, why didn't they make it 21 through 30? 20 through 30 is the last 11. Like, who decided that? Like, do did they, did they need to be that metric about everything? This is America, okay? We don't do the metric system. Yeah, you might be the World Wrestling Federation, but... The, no, you're an American company, and I, 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 lo- I love that I'm lecturing Vince McMahon on how to be a better American, although he certainly could use lessons on, you know, not coddling dictators and stuff like that. But anyway, I'm getting myself all worked up in spite of the fact that I'm about to talk about my favorite professional wrestling match of all time, the 1992 Royal Rumble. So, without any further ado, why don't I just get to it? The 1992 Royal Rumble match from January 19th, 1992. I've been watching wrestling off and on since 1988, and I don't think there's a single line said by anybody on any program that makes me laugh quite as hard and as consistently as after Jack Tunney comes out and (laughs) awkwardly stammers through a speech after being introduced by Howard Finkel. Thank you very much, Howard. Mean and saying that he was the best president since Noriega, which I should point out, the trial of Manuel Noriega was actually going on at this time in 1992. So it was topical, timely, and just an absolute biting line. 
Speaking of Jack Tunney, at this Royal Rumble for the dark match, you had Chris Walker defeating the Brooklyn Brawler. But during the match, Brawler had gotten a pin with his feet on the ropes, and Jack Tunney came down to reverse the decision and to keep the ma- either keep the match going or to actually reverse the decision. This was done to try and get the crowd to be more favorable to him when he would come out to introduce or to do his little speech before the Royal Rumble. I mean, it didn't really work, but it's quite an interesting little moment. Probably the low point of Tunney's administration, at least prior to like that point where he had been in office for eight years. And he had just actually, this is about the eight year mark. He, he takes office late 84. And then beginning in 92, things start to turn a little sour. I think around this whole Royal Rumble, it was not not a good speech by him. Oh, come oh, on. President Jack Tunney is certainly... Oh, oh, it's Davey Boy! The British Bulldog! So the British Bulldog is at number one, and this is at kind of a crossroads for him in that he's very much bulked up from where he was when he's in the British Bulldogs for much of the 80s, but he's not so bulky that he's unable to move and it's not going to blow up. It's kind of like, he he's almost like the weird WWF cousin of Scott Steiner, even though the guys switched places in 93. Come to think of it, did uh, uh, trying to think of the Steiner show up at the WWF around the time Davy Boy leaves, which is kind of funny. So, I don't know, I kind of relate those two guys in my own mind. Well, his whole gimmick, the Bulldog, was he had won the big battle royal at the Royal Albert Hall the previous October. Now, I don't know why he always had to say Royal Albert Hall like he had a mouthful of crackers. I mean, for God's sakes, you'd you'd understand it more easily if Lou Ferrigno was saying it. So Bulldog comes out for number one. So Heenan, he's he's really worried because he does not know what number Flair has because Monsoon earlier in the show during the first four matches wasn't going to let him leave. In fact, they did a bit where he then called somebody over and was going to give him three bucks to go back and find out that what Flair's number was. I don't know if three bucks was some sort of weird foreshadowing. So we go to number two and Heenan, when the million dollar man comes out with the sensational Sherry, no longer the queen. <laughs> Heenan with his first great line of the match. <laughs> oh, million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Who is Sherry? Not Kyle. The sensational Sherry. Here is the million dollar champion, Ted DiBiase. Boy, look at them. You can learn so much about comedy just listening to Bobby Heenan during this match. And that line I particularly like because it involves wordplay. He says, look at them because the camera is pointed directly at Sherry's breasts. And that's clearly what he's talking about. He's not talking about the duo of DiBiase and Sherry. Now, these are the only two people who get music. So you get different kinds of reactions, not so instantaneous. And uh, honestly, I don't mind the fact that there's no music. A lot of people seem to have grown up on the Royal Rumbles with the music. It'd be a couple more years before that would happen, but I'm perfectly fine with it like this. Although, that being said, for the live crowd, it probably mutes some of the reactions because it takes a little bit to register to figure out who's coming out to the ring. I know that I saw something on Twitter from the uh, Positively Pro Wrestling podcast saying, what event would you like to travel back in time to go to between 1988 and I think it was 92? And ordinarily, I would say the 92 Rumble, except for 
Well, you can't really see the guys coming out unless you have really good seats, and you'd miss out on the Bobby Heenan commentary with Girl Monsoon. Now, what's fascinating about DiBiase's turn here is he's pretty much on his way out as a singles competitor. Even though he's the million-dollar champion, he's going to become a tag team champion the following month with IRS. And that's all well and good, but there's always that weird period where when you're wrapping things up as a single wrestler, it doesn't really matter what they do with you. So DiBiase is going to be out of here quickly. But the funny thing is, he actually kicks Bulldog's ass for a good minute and 40 seconds, just showing a wide array of offense, a gut wrench suplex, a, a vertical suplex as well. And DiBiase throws Bulldog over the top, but he does not hit the floor. He lands on the apron. DiBiase preens the crowd in the other, crowd in the other direction, and he ends up getting clotheslined over the top rope. So pretty easy night of work for DiBiase, who turns out to be the only guy who doesn't get to interact with Ric Flair in this match because guess who's coming out for number three? See, back in 92, there were two people you would want to go to when it comes to dealing with and managing heart attacks. One of them was Gorilla Monsoon, because he had a few of them before, and Vince McMahon would have to sub in, like at the 1988 Royal Rumble, and I believe for a brief period in 1990 as well. But also, Bob Swir- it was either Bill or Bob Swirsky from the Superfan sketch on <laughs> SNL, who had, a, uh, I think, 13 heart attacks that they had uh, made into a bit, recurring bit across a number of shows so this is a topic that came up on another podcast i think it was on the lapsed fan where they were constantly ripping on monsoon for he he used this line over and over again nobody who's drawn the numbers one through five has ever been there at the end the reason why he says that is because rick martell was number six the year before and i think at the end is kind of a colloquial i i don't even know how to put it Martel, I, I forget when he got eliminated the year before, but it was within the last four or five people, where or at least around the time 26 or 27 was hitting the ring. And they do mention, actually, when DiBiase was in the ring, that the model had the record of 53 minutes and, I believe, 14 seconds. It's so funny to hear Gorilla be so unsure about a time rather than just saying it when... If it came to, like, the guy's weight, he was absolutely sure that, oh, that guy's up around that 400-pound mark. Advising Heenan to watch his language, probably because he yelled, damn it. I mean, yeah, it was 1992. Things were starting to loosen up. So, Flair gets to the ring. He's He just kind of t- soaks in the crowd as he's looking around. Perfect puts up both hands for the high five, which cracks me up because Flair, if he was to try to do the double high five, he would fall off the apron. So he only hits him with the one hand. And we got two guys in the ring right now who were both there when the Shockmaster fell over <laughs> on the Flair for the Gold segment, which I'm going to get into when I do the This Is Your Life Ric Flair thing a little bit later and all his interactions with everybody else 
in this match. So it's because you get Davey Boy in there with Ric Flair. You know what you're going to get. Similar to the Lex Luger and Sting stuff, a lot of power uh, offense from Davey Boy Smith. And as Heaton announces that he will not be objective in this match, to which Gorilla says, well, when have you ever been objective? This is so great. Just Gorilla just taunting Heenan as, as we go along here. And although some of it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, like Gorilla was treating it like this was some big bet that Perfect and Heenan had on Ric Flair in this. Like there was a lot of money at stake as if if somebody else had won the Royal Rumble that Ric Flair would no longer be a contender. I guess, you know, in a put-up-or-shut-up situation in this match, I guess. How unfortunate for the executive consultant and the financial advisor. Uh, shut up to lose their jobs because this guy, with the luck of the draw, went with number three. Who's coming you out can now. hear him counting down. The next competitor is on his way. And that would be Jerry Sags, which leads to this fun little quirk of the 91 and 92 Rumbles. Yes, I've spoken many times about how I love that Brian Nobbs is one of the last three guys in the 1991 Royal Rumble. But the Nasty Boys were not in the Royal Rumble together in either year. I believe Sags had some sort of injury in 91 that kept him out. And Nobbs had been stabbed by a fan in a apparently a road rage dispute or something to that effect, and was out with a shoulder injury. So it was Sags going it alone here, but he's getting number four, so he's clearly not going to last the end. But he beats on the Bulldog, and they double-team Sags and Flair do. With some As Heenan says, let Sags do all the work. <laughs> he also tells Gorilla to shut up as Bulldog hits a double clothesline on both Flair and Sags coming out of the corner. Sags is then thrown over the top rope by the Bulldog, and then he also he preens on the apron, and Bulldog just drop kicks him, because even though he's a power guy, he can still do that kind of offense. And we get the first of, this isn't fair to Flair. Dropkick, and he's out. No. It's back to Bulldog and Flair. Davey said, it's you and me, Flair. This isn't fair to Flair. This is not fair to Flair. It certainly is. The thing I love most about Flair in this match is how he's willing to engage absolutely everybody. He's not laying down in the corner to rest. He's not taking a nap outside of the ring, which is just something that drives me nuts in more modern Royal Rumble. So he goes right back to Bulldog. And, of course, we get chops in the corner, which is a spot that he'll do with a lot of people in this match because it's a nice fun, quick thing that he could do with anybody that comes into the ring where he can chop them, and then he gets turned around, he gets chopped, and, you know, we we all just move along. So everybody's going to have their engagement with him because he's been calling himself the real world's champion, and while, you know, the, the baby faces hate him because he's a heel, other heels may have some sort of either pre-existing history with him, according to the interpromotional carryover that I have in my own brain, or they don't like that he's calling himself the real world's champion. Like, I'm going to you know, show this cocky bastard. I have the kayfabe hat firmly in place. As, you know, chops like a 357 Magnum, as Heenan says. As we get, a, 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 there's some dude marking out in the first row. I look closely. It is not Dave Meltzer, because uh, that's Chi-Town Rumble 89. It's uh, some other dude. As number five 
and Haku is in, he goes right after Bulldog because they still need to have it out over the whole Matilda kidnapping thing. But then as he's worked over Davy Boy a little bit, Haku just kicks Flair and then Flair is just begging off as Heenan's going nuts because he managed Haku at one time and feels like he should be granted some sort of grace because he's associated with Flair, who actually takes a powder outside the ring for five seconds, which is good because the referees order him back in and he goes right back in. But Haku is taking it to the Bulldog with a very stiff-looking pile driver, but Flair takes this opportunity to sneak up on Haku from behind. And then he hits the flare knee drop, I believe, on Davy Boy. And he took some pretty poor, piss poor writing notes on this one as Heenan asks, Where is perfect? <laughs> and Monsoon with a great reply. Where is perfect? They're not allowed at ringside, Brain. You know that. He's not a manager, he's an executive consultant. Same thing, a pest. It's kind of weird how the WWF would always be in and out on that in those early years. Like, in 1990, the managers were allowed to stay at ringside, which led to the strange sight of the one-on-one between the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan. And Bobby Heenan's just out there at ringside chilling, probably because he knows that the Barbarian and Rick Rude are going to be coming down a little bit later. But it's really just kind of a strange sight, some odd optics, if you will. As Bulldog backdrops Haku out, so revenge for Matilda finally, and that happens with four seconds left. As the organization of Royal Rumble matches, where they start out here and you're not having any more than three guys in there at the beginning. So you're building it around Bulldog and Flair for the first, oh, quarter of the match. As at number six, we get somebody who's about to get a big push later in 1992. Shawn Michaels, who had just put Marty Jannetty through the barbershop window the previous week, which explains why Jannetty is not there, but Jannetty was not there for various other reasons due to legal issues and probably some other stuff as well. And even though he's a heel now, he goes after Flair because, as Monsoon says, some guys hate Flair more than others. But HBK gets hit by the Bulldog, gets clotheslined over the top, but hangs on and then hits the sugar-free chin music, which actually was was pretty bad super kick by him. He he didn't even he totally exposed the business by not hitting Bulldog's head. As Heenan asked for some water, I mean he probably was sweating because he was definitely getting himself worked up. I mean even if even if you're doing something that's all an act, I mean you're really putting a lot of energy into it. As Bulldog. Uh, HBK ends up getting crotched on the top rope. And I have to admit, for all the crap that I've given Shawn Michaels, and justifiably so, given, you know, (laughs) what a dink he was for much of the 90s, and then, oh, God. And just just for the way he looks in more recent videos, he looks really good early on in this match. As number seven hits the reg, and Tito Santana, and guess who he goes after? Yes, El Matador goes right after Ric Flair. It, it tries for the uh, quickie uh, elimination as Brain calls out for perfect once again. And then Shawn Michaels squares off with El Matador, who we will be facing at WrestleMania 8 a couple of months down the line. And another great Heenan line based on the color of El Matador's trunks and his heritage. Shawn Michaels is making guacamole out of El Matador. He is not. 
of the tights, they're green. Guacamole is a lot like hummus in that I didn't really get to experience it until later in life. I don't think I had guacamole until I was at least 20 years old, probably in a dining hall at college, I would think. <laughs> Flair hits a couple of his trademark moves, a back suplex on El Matador, which is letting all Japan know that, hey, if I fuck this up and I accidentally eliminate myself in this match and I get fired, maybe I'll come over to all Japan for a quickie tour because the name Ric Flair certainly has some cachet. He also hits a nut shot on the British Bulldog, which would not be the last time that that we would be seeing that in this match, as Heenan proudly proclaims that he would do that to his own grandmother, which I'm not sure that that move would work quite as well. Also, it would be interesting to see Heenan's grandmother in a Royal Rumble match, as Tito hits the flying forearm on Flair. And Ricky, he, I don't know why I'm calling him Ricky. I mean, I'm a little too formal here, but for God, informal that is. But for God's sakes, Tito, Tito hitting his finisher on Ric Flair, or at least his former finisher. It's like Flair is almost playing the Miz role. I wonder if they ever commiserated over that. Okay, I'll stop doing that. That's number eight. The Barbarian comes out and (laughs) Gorilla just twisting the knife is just, oh, it's magic. Anybody. When I managed him, he barely liked me. Why do you think they call him the Barbarian? I have so many emotions whenever I hear Gorilla say that. Barbarian doesn't like Flair. It's like, oh, how do we know? <laughs> well, I guess Barbarian doesn't like anybody, as he did say. Barbarian doesn't like Flair. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Gorilla's role in this, everybody talks about how great Heenan is, but, you know, for a comedy duo, you need a good second guy to just really do his job, and Gorilla and Heenan obviously are are just magic together, as the Barbarian actually goes at goes after flair and they they kind of but then flair you know hangs back and starts picking his spot he actually barbarian does goes after the british bulldog his teammate at survivor series 1988 and if you expected me not to bring that up then well clearly you are new to this podcast because all roads lead back to the 1988 survivor series so flair what he's doing he's actually this is a very smart match in kayfabe in my opinion yes he's taking it to everybody early but he's also hanging back but he's not like lying under the ring like i said earlier and just sort of picking his spots he's sort of waiting for what happens next and he's going to go at whoever comes into the ring because they're going to come at him either way as number nine is carrie von eric the texas tornado old friend of rick flair old rival that is 1982 and 84 the classic matches on Christmas night in 82 that kicks off the Freebirds feud. So Flair was just kind of incidental to that one. But in 84, Flair loses the NWA title at the David Von Erich Memorial Show to Kerry. And this is around the time where Kerry is starting to get into trouble with drugs. And uh, we don't we don't see him for very much longer in the WWF after this. And sadly, he takes his own life about a year after. He goes after Flair and we get a little flurry in the corner with Kerry. And this is where Flair walks out and just does a flare flop into the middle of the ring. But Heenan, 
he's actually got a different sort of strategy. He, I don't know how he feels about the way Ric Flair has approached the Royal Rumble so far, but Heenan has a different take on what you should do. More like the uh, bunkhouse brawl, that you know, something like that. Hey, the best way, the best way to win this, you come to the ring and you carry a wrench, a big crescent wrench. Well, it worked on The Simpsons in that Iron Yuppie versus Dr. Hillbilly match. I believe a crescent wrench ended that one. Although, I don't know, that was a very early Simpsons, so I can't really remember. And I don't have Disney+, Plus, so I can't probably can't bring it up on demand. As number 10 is the Repo Man, who Gorilla immediately ridicules because he's doing that bit where he's looking around, almost as if he doesn't know where the ring is, which Gorilla happily and gleefully points out. As Tito Santana hits what may be, at, at best, the second most hilarious spot that he ever did with a high cross body on the Barbarian in a, in a Royal Rumble. Apparently, he thought he was playing WrestleFest. But of course, the funniest Tito Santana spot of all time is at Survivor Series 1988, say it along with me, where he does a sunset flip on Andre the Giant and Andre just sits on him. As he like flails his legs trying to kick out. It's so great. As we get some stiff chops by Flair on the Texas Tornado. And I'm just back to 1984 in Texas Stadium. And I have another participant coming through right now. And it is the Hammer Valentine. How long was he in Leicester? Last year in the Royal Rumble. In there for 44 minutes and 20 seconds exactly. Uh, here's a former Intercontinental Champion. Valentine, also a former United States Champion in Jim Crockett Promotions, but he's not going to say that on a WWF telecast in 1992. Oh no, but that goes into why I love this so much is when you think about Greg Valentine and Ric Flair, they're closely linked. But at this point, 1992, they hadn't shared a ring with each other in almost eight, nine years at this point. Because Valentine's out of Crockett in early 1984. And it's not like he feuded with Flair after, let's say, the early 1980s. They're just never in the same place at the same time. In fact, they teamed up with each other. But I'm kind of spoiling my bit for later with my <laughs> Ric Flair's connections to everybody in this match. Of course, they trade chops as the Bulldog actually holds for his former WrestleMania 2 opponent, the Hammer Valentine. And it says that's not fair to Flair again. As Gorilla just kind of admonishes him, why don't you just forget it? It's just, you know, he's not going to win at this point. There's a nut shot on the Repo Man, which cra cracks me up for whatever reason, because it's like, you have to go to a low blow on the Repo Man. Maybe you should start reevaluating things. As Shawn Michaels, once again, is hanging off the apron. As I said, he's he's got that Rick Martel template from the year before going, where you don't just want to hang around in the match for a long time, and you don't want to like almost be eliminated a couple times. You, you want to make it exciting when you have the near elimination. As number 12, Nikolai Volkov, comes out to some booze because apparently they forgot that he's a babyface. Because he, as I recall, he wasn't around much in 1991. He was subbing here for Marty Jannetty, who I, as I mentioned was out for various reasons. Well, things are pretty rough right now over there for those Russians. Too bad. What a feather in the cap it would be for Nikolai yeah, to pick up the goal here. 
Yes, what a feather in the cap it would be for Nikolai Volkov in the year of our Lord, 1992, to become the WWF World Heavyweight Champion. Do you ever just sit there and, you know, you watch these things, especially this type of match where it's conceivable, oh, anybody can win the title, and I have the air quotes up, and you want to do the Howard Finkel, the winner of this contest, and new World Wrestling Federation Champion, the Repo Man, and you just say that with various people who you know aren't going to win. I do that sometimes on long drives just to amuse myself. I, I think about Repo Man actually winning the world title. This isn't right. I think it's fair. Not the flare. I think that's Monsoon and Heenan's version of an alley-oop where Monsoon just kind of lays it up there with, I think it's fair, knowing where Heenan is going to go with the joke and just slam dunk it right home. As we get a figure four leg lock in the middle of the ring by the hammer on Ric Flair. See, these two dudes definitely missed each other, you know, working spots together in this Royal Rumble. I mean, Hammer's not going to be in there very long, and Volkov is in there for even less because he doesn't even make it through to number 13, who is the big boss man, who, of course, also has a connection to Ric Flair that I'll get into momentarily, as the Repo Man gets the elimination on Greg the Hammer Valentine. So Valentine goes 44 minutes. It's the year before, and they're discussing, well, if he lasts this long, he's going to become the world champion, the winner of the Royal Rumble, and new World Wrestling Federation champion, 1992, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Now, the boss man, he, he that bulldog and flare quadrant where... The third guy keeps getting eliminated. The second quarter begins when Shawn Michaels arrives and you start to get more people in the ring. And very soon we're going to be coming up to the halftime where you get down to two people and Flair is actually alone in the ring momentarily. And I think it goes into how well this is structured. Sometimes they like to do, they fell in love with that Diesel as King of the Mountain in the 94 Royal Rumble, where they've done it in years since. I remember particularly Bray Wyatt at the 2015 Royal Rumble, or in a better sense, a much better Royal Rumble, in 97 with Steve Austin, where he did the Out of the Ring by Flair. So, He's in there for a good 24 minutes or so. I'm not going to get up the stopwatches or anything, and I'm not really looking at the Wikipedia thing, although I think Flair was almost exactly one hour. And Tornado, Kerry comes over, goes after Flair, but he gets backdropped out as well. And this is where you can kind of tell where, oh, they're looking around, you get your cue, you're supposed to be eliminated after this guy, and like, okay, let's let's just get it over with here. As Shawn Michaels and Tito Santana actually go, and that kind of sets up their WrestleMania 8 match, or so it seems. It was a rumor that Shawn Michaels was going to team with Marty, with Marty Gennetti, he'd already done that, with Ted DiBiase. Instead, they gave it to IRS, which is probably a better move because it allowed Shawn to become a single and annoy me for years and years to come. Number 14 is Hercules, who goes right after Flair. <laughs> Tort. Hercules goes right after Flair. What's wrong with you, Hercules? Maybe he remembers how you treated him. Really, really? You think Hercules is still sore about being sold into slavery by Bobby Heenan? <laughs> think of somebody be upset about that. I mean, they did a human trafficking angle in 1988, except nobody called it that. Hercules, by the way, is on his way out in very memorable fashion in early 1992. It's only a couple weeks after this, a show at Madison Square Garden. I believe this entire match is on YouTube. In fact, I think you could probably fit the entire bout in, what do they call those now, T-1000? 
TikTok. I think it used to be Vine at the eight seconds. But it's a very quick match with Sid Justice, as he was still known. And the heel turn had been taped, but he he is still a babyface to the Madison Square Garden crowd. What what a shock that is. And Hercules takes the powerbomb in the most lackadaisical fashion where he puts his hands behind his head like he's Ferris Bueller, like laying in the recliner or whatever. And then he just rolls out of the ring and completely no-sells it. So clearly he had to disappear and become a super invader after that in WCW. But we get another funny moment with Flair. And it's these unintentional comedy spots that get me is where, (laughs) for whatever reason, Flair decides to high-five the Barbarian for for absolutely no reason. And then Flair goes and tries to chop him, the freaking Barbarian. Little high-five there. But to his credit, Flair does not do that unless the moment specifically calls for it. You see it a little bit with Piper, you see it with Hogan, and very early on he's on the floor, but only for about five or six seconds. It's like if you were doing count-out rules in a Royal Rumble, which, by the way, I would institute... Just, just so that, you know, for fans like me who get taken out of the match when people just take a nap on the outside or hide under the ring, I mean, the spot is so effed out. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. I can swear on this episode. It's so fucked out. I mean, the two pre, pre-show pre battle royals at WrestleMania 35 last year, both of them are have hiding under the ring spots. I mean, don't do that for a while. I mean, at least give it a couple of years. So the Barbarian does a press slam on Flair. It's like the rite of passage for all power guys in this match. But then Barbarian, shortly thereafter, is eliminated by Hercules. Now, let's think about that. Barbarian is eliminated by Hercules in the year 1992. It feels like feels like a real downgrade for him. I mean, Hercules wasn't beating anybody at this point. His flair is just kind of hanging on. And Hercules, once again, just like the infamous 1991 Saturday Night's Main Event Battle Royal, he's eliminated by the big boss man. No, he did not throw himself out of the ring, Keith. He's eliminated by the boss man, who actually falls over but he actually is hangs on and stays in the ring. So kind of impressive for a man of that carriage. So now we get a little one-on-one between the big boss man and Ric Flair. We get a clothesline and a sidekick by big boss man because this is at a point where he's very, very slim, where the boss man outfit is starting to get a little ill-fitting. So now he has to fatten up a bit to have the outfit, you know, be worn correctly, except for the fact that by the end of 1992, he hangs around into, you know, through 93, but you don't really hear much from the boss man after about the 93 Royal Rumble. And he goes for a diving cross body, a move that in Royal Rumbles annoys me to no end, because what is the end game there? Like, you're probably going to end up going over the top rope along with the person. I mean, what what the hell, really? But then the boss man adds a little bit extra by nearly decapitating himself on the way down by getting his neck and head stuck on the bottom rope. But he falls to the floor, <laughs> and Flair stands alone in the ring momentarily, which gets Bobby Heaton really excited. Oh, nice move. Boss man, get his feet hit the ground. Oh, yes. 
Flair the champion of the world. Flair wins it. What? Are you kidding? It's a lot more guys. A lot more still to come. It's such a great bit. Heenan thinking Flair had won because he's the only guy left when we're only through number 14. So this is the halftime show of the Royal Rumble. If if this is booked into the four quarters, this is definitely halftime. And what a way it is to kick off the third quarter. But that is where I'm going to leave you for this episode. There will be a part two, of course. But due to the time constraints of trying to do this episode in only a couple of days, I, I want to do the end of this Royal Rumble justice. So what I'm going to end up doing is this is going to be posted on the normal Thursday. So if you're a first-day listener, great. You've, you're, you're listening on Thursday as usual. But part two, I will be posting on either Sunday or Monday. So that would be November 24th. So be on the lookout for that. And then on Thanksgiving, there will be another episode as well of Greetings for Valentine. But before I forget, I had written on my blog, section309.com, may it rest in peace, by the way, an article called 1992 Royal Rumble, This Is Your Life, Ric Flair, which kind of went through everybody in order in the match and described either a past interaction with Ric Flair or a future interaction with Ric Flair that has nothing to do with this Royal Rumble match where Ted DiBiase is the only person who never has any involvement with Flair except for... Flair saying that DiBiase told him, see you at the bar on the way back. But I think that's just one of those things that Ric Flair says. You know what I mean? So let's start. Number one, the British Bulldog. In April 1992, Bulldog beat Flair on the post-WrestleMania 8 UK tour. The match is on YouTube. There's a handheld of that. Bulldog was also on the set of Flair for the Gold in 93 when the Shockmaster fell down. I mentioned that a bit earlier. Number two, Ted DiBiase. They were on the same team at the match in Mid-South for Flair's NWA world title that turned DiBiase into the top babyface in Mid-South. And that's certainly an episode I'm going to be doing soon. Number three, Ric Flair. Wrestled himself on numerous occasions, such as a drug-addled Kerry Von Erich in Texas in the 80s. Number four, Jerry Sags and the Nasty Boys. Rick teamed up with his son Reed at a, 19, at a 2008 indie show to take on the Nasty Boys. Haku was number five. As Meng in WCW, he was in the alliance to end Hulkamania with Flair, which culminated at WCW Uncensored 96. Number six was Shawn Michaels. Flair had his famous retirement match against Shawn at WrestleMania 24, but also teamed with HBK on some 1992 house shows to face Bret Hart and Randy Savage. I believe one of them was in Worcester, Massachusetts. They also had a match, Shawn and Rick, on, the, on a, a 1991, November 1991 episode of Primetime Wrestling. Number seven, El Matador, Tito Santana. Tito Santana? Okay. Flair had a match with El Matador on the SummerSlam 92 Spectacular and on one of the first Raw episodes in 1993. I believe it is the one that airs the week before the 93 Royal Rumble. Number eight, The Barbarian. Also in the alliance, Dan Hulkamania with Flair, which culminated at WCW Uncensored 96. Number nine, the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich. They've faced off many times in Texas with two matches more famous than all the others. The Christmas 82 cage match that jump-started the Freebirds Von Erich's feud and also the 84 Texas Stadium show where Kerry won the NWA title from Flair. And then, of course, there was the rematch, which I believe took place in Japan a couple of weeks later to get Flair the title back. Number 10, the Repo feuded as well. Number 12, Nikolai Volkov. Unfortunately, I could not find any connection, probably because Flair never did any of the USA patriotic-style programs, and also because 
Volkov, after a while, was a regular in the WWF after 84. And before that, Flair as an NWA champion wasn't probably going to be facing Volkov in any territories in the very early 80s. Number 13, the big boss man, Ray Trailer, under a mask, filled in for the injured J.J. Dillon at the second War Games match on the 1987 Great American Bash Tour. He played War Machine on the side of the Four Horsemen. They also had a match on an international airing of Superstars in January of 1993, which I'm sure Richard Land, if you're out there listening, the new proprietor, if you will, of the history of WWE.com, he's probably talking into his podcatcher saying, Yes, the big boss man, Ric Flair, he was probably shouting it before I even got to it. And finally, Hercules, another guy I didn't find any really connection with, with Flair, but he's the last person of that type. Flair mostly faced a different guy named Hercules Ayala in Puerto Rico in 1985. But another connection, I guess, this might be a bit of a stretch, both of them faced Ricky Steamboat on pay-per-view in the 1980s. So as I wrap this up, I want to thank you for listening. And I want to let you know, if you, if you couldn't get enough of me on this show and you can't, can't wait for part two, I, I urge you to go to a little podcast called Freak Out Drive-In on the Jenny Position feed, hosted by Jennifer Smith. I had mentioned this a few weeks back because we taped it a while ago. And I'm very eager to hear what I said because I'm at a point now where I can't remember stuff that I said anymore. But we watched the movie The Village, which may not qualify as your classic horror movie, but it's a personal horror movie for me because of how much I hated it at the time. Will I like it any better this time? Do tune in to find out because I kind of go into various topics. As I recall, I don't remember exactly what I said, but do check that out. That show will be out by the time this episode drops. Also, the Our Vantage Point podcast, don't forget to check that out with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn dropping on Mondays, and the also on Mondays, the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett, Brian Malonis, and Brian Fury, although one of them might be at Disney World. I think, I think Malonis is going to Disney World. I wonder if he's staying in the hotel that Fury was just at, and they just have some sort of agreement there. I'm not sure. And, of course, the Sportscasters with my good friend Steve Bennett. Do check that out and his extensive back catalog of great interviews with Kenny Albert, Joe Buck. I mean, if you want to know anything, the ins and outs of sports broadcasting, that is the podcast to go to because, like I said, Steve gets more out of these guys. He gets different stuff out of these guys than you hear anywhere else. I do ask that you give a five-star review for Greetings from Allentown or tell a friend. If, if you do either, that to me, that provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. I thank you so much for the, the patience because my laptop, as I said, is very old and it's breaking down. So it makes it hard to rush through a podcast because it's just going too slow. So I'm going to need to buy a new laptop at some point in the next couple of months, but I'll, I'll save that discussion for another time. I already went in on the Microsoft store earlier, so enough about that. But again, thank you so much, and do tune in in a couple of days for part two of the 1992 Royal Rumble on Greetings from Allentown.
It's rare. It certainly is.